Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Highway Community Podcast for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. Believe it or not, this coming Wednesday, March 2nd, is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, which is a season of soul-searching and repentance that precedes Easter. And over the years, two hallmarks of the Lenten season at the Highway Community have been our Ash Wednesday service, which will be happening this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, both in person at our Miramonte campus and live on our YouTube channel and on Facebook. Two of the hallmarks have been our Ash Wednesday service and the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday. Now, the Stations of the Cross is a long-standing church tradition with roots dating all the way back to the 14th century. Now, Christians had already been traveling to Jerusalem on pilgrimages during that time to see the holy sites, including the places where Jesus lived and suffered and died. But in the 14th century, the Franciscans were appointed to be the guardians of the holy places for the Latin church. And out of that responsibility, along with the Franciscans' emphasis on a more physical, embodied, incarnational faith, emerged the practice of retracing Christ's steps in Jerusalem on Good Friday, along with visiting other sites. And so people would trace Jesus' path from the Garden of Gethsemane to the home of the high priest, and then to Pilate's palace, through the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, and then, at last, to the tomb, of stopping along the way to reflect on Jesus' journey of suffering. By the 16th century, this tradition became so meaningful and so well-loved that people wanted to do it at home without having to make the trip to Jerusalem. And so, reproductions were built and devotions were written for each of the stations. Typically, the journey would begin inside the church, and then people would go outside to walk the route, stopping in prayer and devotion at each of the stations. Over time, artists began to render pictures and sculptures depicting Jesus' journey to enhance the experience. As the Stations of the Cross tradition evolved through the years, there could be anywhere from 19 to 37 different stations. But eventually, there came to be 14 traditional stations. Nine of those stations have their roots in the scriptures, while the others, including three stations that commemorate Jesus falling under the cross, have their roots in medieval oral tradition. In more recent times, Pope John Paul II redefined the sequence to align it with the biblical accounts. Those 14 stations are Jesus in Gethsemane, Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus' denial by Peter, Jesus' trial before Pilate, Jesus' scourging, Jesus bears his cross, Jesus helped by Simon, Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem, Jesus is crucified. Jesus promises the kingdom to the thief. Jesus speaks to his mother. Jesus dies on the cross. And Jesus is laid in the tomb. 
And over the years, the Stations of the Cross has been a very venerable and very significant part of the worship life of the highway community. Since 2003, we've been hosting a slightly condensed 10-station version of the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday. And this self-guided, multi-sensory, contemplative journey has helped us connect with Jesus' journey to the cross in a way that is very tactile and experiential and moving. And as we continue to follow God into a new era of ministry together, in the same way that we dedicated the first Advent season of Highway Volume 2 to reestablishing and recentering and rerouting ourselves in the liturgical practice of the lighting of the candles of Advent, we wanted to dedicate the first Lenten season to rerouting ourselves in the Stations of the Cross. And so this morning, we are beginning a new teaching series for the seven weeks leading up to Easter entitled The Stations of the Cross. And we're going to start our series in the upper room, just before Jesus' journey to the cross begins. Now Mark chapter 14 tells us that on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus and his disciples met in a large, furnished upper room to celebrate Passover, the pilgrim festival commemorating God's deliverance of the Israelites from their years of slavery in Egypt. And as a part of that celebration, they shared together in the Passover meal. In Mark chapter 14, verse 18, says that while they were at the table eating, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. It's hard to to read those verses and not feel the mic-dropping effect that Jesus' words must have had in the middle of this meal. And as we look more closely at these verses, there are a couple of things that are important to highlight. One is the emphasis that Jesus places on the fact that the one who will betray him is eating with him. Mark chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone was more than just sharing some food with friends. Sharing a meal was highly symbolic. Meals in the ancient world were intimate settings. They were, they were the embodiment of social solidarity. Sharing a meal communicated acceptance. It, it reinforced the bonds that tied people together. And so the fact that the one who betrays Jesus is one who is eating with him is extra shocking. It makes Jesus' betrayal even more dastardly. In addition to the emphasis that Jesus places on his betrayer being someone who is eating with him, something else that we should notice here is the response of the disciples to what Jesus shares with them. Mark chapter 14, verse 19 says that they were saddened 
and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. And so we see there that the disciples are saddened by this news from Jesus. More literally, they are deeply grieved. But that initial response of sadness ultimately gives way to each of the disciples, one by one, seeking reassurance from Jesus that they are not the betrayer. Now, think about that for a moment. But Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to be betrayed. And the thing that's the most distressing to them as they absorb that, the thing for the disciples that elicit the response is, is not what this means for Jesus. It's not what all of this means for Jesus's fate, which of course is horrific. Instead, what's most distressing to them is the fact that this accusation is against one of them. That is the thing that they're focused on. And surely they, each one of them asked Jesus, you don't mean me. And I point this out, but not, not as a judgment against the disciples, but rather as a way of pressing into the experience of Jesus in this moment. That Jesus has shared troubling news with his most intimate friends in a most intimate setting. And he's effectively unseen and unheard. And unfortunately for the disciples, Jesus' response to this question that each of them has asked only deepens the discomfort that they're experiencing. Jesus says very definitively in verse 20 of Mark 14, it is one of the twelve, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And once again there, we see Jesus referring to the meal, this time emphasizing how close his betrayer is to him physically. And that's because in the ancient world, the persons who were physically closest to either the host or the guest of honor at a meal were considered to be the most important guests. And Jesus' betrayer is so close that he can dip his bread into the same bowl, underscoring once again the depths of Jesus' betrayal. One of Jesus' closest, most important guests is his betrayer. We definitely hear the sense of betrayal that's articulated in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, echoed in Jesus' words. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, everything about these story elements that we've highlighted, from Jesus' repeated emphasis on the betrayer being at the meal and all of the implications associated with that, to each of the disciples' effort to get Jesus to assure them that they are not the betrayer, each of those things magnifies a very bitter irony, and that is how isolated Jesus is. How isolated Jesus is. And Mark 
through the very way that he's constructed his narrative, is inviting us to experience as readers, he's inviting us to experience as hearers, the way in which Jesus is in this room full of the people who are closest to him, right? This room full of the people with whom he's the most invested, this room full of his most intimate friends, sharing a meal, and yet he's totally alone. Jesus is in this room full of people, and yet he is very much alone. Well, after they had finished the meal and sung a hymn, Mark says that Jesus and the disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. And there, Jesus makes another mic-dropping announcement. Listen to Mark chapter 14, verse 27. You will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And so now we see that Jesus's prediction doesn't just involve one person. This time it's everyone. And so there's no room for anyone to ask if Jesus means them because Jesus very definitively reveals that they will all fall away. And Mark chapter 14, verse 29 says that Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. It's interesting. Jesus very deliberately links the prophecy that he quotes here from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, to a promise. The shepherd will be struck, that's Jesus, and the sheep will be scattered, That's the disciples. But then Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And so Jesus promises that he will rise, and he promises that he will regather those who have scattered in Galilee. And yet, similar to what we saw in the upper room, Peter here gets fixated on the part of Jesus's predictions that have to do with the disciples deserting Jesus, and even more particularly on the prospect of himself falling away. But again, like we saw in the upper room, Jesus's response to Peter only serves to deepen his discomfort. Mark chapter 14, verse 30 says, Truly I tell you, today, yes, Tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And so Jesus reveals there, what must have been an extremely painful thing for Peter to hear, that Peter will not just abandon him, but he will also disown him verbally. And Peter's emphatic response, his emphatic response that he will never disown Jesus even if he has to die, is both honorable and authentic in the moment. And we should also notice that all of the other disciples, like Peter, said the same. But of course, they had no idea what the coming hours were going to bring and how true Jesus' words would very soon be. 
Now, these predictions that Jesus makes here in Mark chapter 14 about his betrayal and the abandonment of his disciples and, and the experience of loneliness and isolation that emerged from them are really just a harbinger of what's to come for Jesus as he journeys to the cross. And this year, our Stations of the Cross teaching series is inspired by that. We noted earlier that traditionally there are 14 stations or 14 stops on the way to the cross. And since there are only seven weeks between now and the celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday, our Stations of the Cross series is going to trace the isolation and the loneliness that Jesus experiences along the way, which progresses from the disciples falling asleep in Gethsemane when Jesus asked them to pray, which, which very much extends this experience we've seen this morning of Jesus being alone yet with others. It progresses from that all the way to the Father, forsaking him on the cross as he breathes his last breath. The Stations of the Cross were originally intended to be an invitation to walk with Jesus and enter into his suffering, as opposed to watching from a distance. And so the Stations are, are very much an invitation for us, in the spirit of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And as we endeavor to do that this Lenten season, as we walk with Jesus in the very midst of the loneliness and isolation that we've experienced in so many different ways over the course of the past two years, my prayer is that God's Spirit will lead us to places of new and deep and rich resonance and empathy with our Savior. And that as we are companions with Jesus in his loneliness and isolation, that we will find him to be our, our companion as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this season and for all that it means. And we thank you, Father, for the gift that the Stations of the Cross has been to followers of Jesus throughout the centuries and the gift that it is to us. We thank you, Father, for the invitation that it extends to us to enter in to Jesus' journey, to walk along with him, to companion with him, and to feel and experience and empathize with the suffering that he endured in all of its various forms. And Father, as we step into that this Lenten season as a community, would you open our, our eyes, but even more importantly, would you open our hearts to the experience of Jesus? And Father, would you acutely make us attentive to the progressive isolation and progressive loneliness that Jesus experiences. 
would we walk with Jesus and walk alongside him through that? And would you, through your spirit, be speaking to us as we engage in that journey? And would we find Jesus to be our companion as we companion with him? We love you and we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.